As we heard in headlines today, the county mayors now have the authority to adjust COVID restrictions in their jurisdictions, thanks to the latest emergency order signed by the governor. We heard from Big Island Mayor Mitch Roth yesterday. Today, we have a conversation with Koi Mayor Derek Kawakami. We're all going through similar challenges. Uh, Businesses have a hard time finding workers. We have a hard time finding workers. You know, case counts will continue to go up and down, but, you know, we have good communication with our hospitals. And, you know, we just talked to Jen Chanovich from APH Wilcox, and, you know, they're they're doing fine. I think, uh, you know, I asked her one question. I said, you know, in a normal day-to-day, we don't, mayors never pay attention to hospital capacity or ventilator use i'm like are these numbers just like sort of the common things that you see and she said yes you know we usually have an occupancy rate of of this much percent it's just you know things have been heightened um as far as our awareness on certain issues that we're not on a normal day-to-day concerned about. I think at this point in time, the governor uh, dropping restrictions is a natural occurrence. I think he's starting to look at the statewide vaccination rate. He's been able to see how the state has handled the worst of the Delta variant surge. And now he is leaning more back towards a home rule with the counties and the mayors having an ability to have a say. But I don't anticipate too much change here on Kauai with the governor's announcement and his new emergency rule. We're going to continue to be mindful, especially since health experts are analyzing this new variant. But we're going to continue to do just whatever we can to support the Department of Health and continue to support the state and make sure that um, our people are safe and that the economy is continuing to thrive. Now, the vaccination rates for Kauai County, I'm just looking at a thing, like 67%, and I don't know how good those numbers are, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, here on Oahu, you know, they're much higher with a larger population. So what do you think accounts for the lower rates there? Well, I think just uh, naturally we're more rural in nature. You know, we're not living in such tight quarters as much of urban Oahu is. I think that if um, many of our families are living in high rises or having to share an elevator to get up and down uh, to and from work, um, they would probably uh, be more inclined to perhaps consider getting vaccinated. But I think um, you know our island is, is doing quite well. Uh, of course, we always wish more people would get vaccinated. But we're, we're not in a race with the other counties in anything because I think it's very obvious and apparent at this point that the whole world is in this situation. And the quicker we can all uh, get together and move in the right, right direction, I think the sooner we'll be able to, to get through this. So I'm very glad that Oahu, in fact, I hope that Oahu has a vaccination rate that far outpaces the rest of the islands because... We rely so much on Oahu. I mean, we get worried whenever there's a hurricane that's approaching. We get worried um, about anything impacting Oahu uh, because the neighbor island counties, we really rely on Oahu. I don't know what your counts are, the visitor counts are for uh, Kauai these days, you know, with the holidays. You know, and there's a concern about that new variant. So we're just waiting on the best information just to see, you know, how contagious is it and and how serious is it? Yes, still too early to tell. You know, people shouldn't be to a point where thinking about this variant 
erodes at their mental health and their physical physical health as well. I would say these type of mutations occur, especially in coronaviruses. Um, and it's going to be, um, we got some of the best scientists and health experts all looking at it to try and figure it out. So I would say that we should continue to be as safe as we possibly can. Let them figure it out and let us know uh, what we need to do to respond, if anything. As far as the indoor masking, it's it makes sense, especially um, you know when we're talking about not transmitting or getting sick. So I support it. What about the the visitor counts? Are you folks managing uh, the numbers of tourists that are coming in? The amount of tourists coming in, it's like nothing really changed in our infrastructure, right? I mean, to do the type of infrastructure changes. To be able to handle the capacity of our visitor industry, it's just, it would take uh, years and years of very big investments. But we are starting to see uh, people starting to um, utilize alternative forms of transportation. I was just on the North Shore and I saw the North Shore shuttle just doing their thing, getting visitors to and from Ke'e. Uh, we saw their parking lot full, so that's always a good sign is when we start to see our visitors jumping on uh, other forms of transportation. But I think for our businesses, they're just happy to see the increased customer count, uh, getting their workers back to work, and um, just being able to, to continue to keep their businesses operating. So I think the visitors uh, coming into Kauai is, um, is, is a blessing for many of our local mom and pops that they've been waiting for. And then just, just the other situation with the rental cars. I don't know if you've got a lot of Turo drivers. We initially, like Turo was like, you know, everybody was, was getting into Turo. Uh, I don't know if the rental car companies have been able to increase their capacity. I just, I haven't heard much of it. Um, and so I wouldn't know. Overall, though, you seem to be managing okay. We're managing quite well. I mean, you know, this is a big challenge. Um, we're always... Uh, keeping an eye on things. Um, but, you know, as far as the county of Kauai, uh, we've been able to get back to our bread and butter, which is to make sure that our projects and our road improvements are on time, on schedule, and on price, uh, making sure that our services that we were able to deliver um, are continually being improved. We started getting our managers uh, back into a training program. And so much as businesses have returned to normal, more and more the county of Poi is returning back to our normal operation and prioritization as well. And where are you at on the uh, hotel room tax bill? Oh, we're collecting money already. It, yeah, we took the 3%. Our finance department had to work very hard to get a system in place. They created an online payment portal so that uh, TAT tax payees have a way to pay into the county. It's uh, We're receiving payments as we speak, and it's much needed. It, it is amazing that our finance director was able to um, find a workaround to make it happen with, with those taxes support. So that is something that I'm very uh, pleasantly surprised. And yes, um, uh, we are... We are starting to get some TAT, so at least we'd be able to count on that revenue. Uh, but is it enough to be able to, you know, do what you need to do and provide the county services? At no, this point? not right now. I mean, it would have to. We would have to see what we come out at the end of the fiscal year. But 
normally, you know, we're, we're getting about 15 million. So I don't know if we're going to be able to collect that, but we're just happy that we're able to collect it because at, at one point it seemed like it would be an impossible task and we're making it happen. And are your workers, are they emergency hires? Did you have to make permanent? Because I know in some um, counties that was for the case. The, for our uh, finance department? Yeah. Most of our emergency hires were to support the COVID-19 response. Gotcha. We, we didn't have any emergency hires for the collection of the TET. Okay. It's just really the finance department doing more with what they have. Okay. Um, all right. You know, optimism is something that is a choice. Uh, positivity is a choice. And no matter how big the challenge is, you know, my mom would just say, hey, just focus on getting one step in front of the other and let's just get it done. And, um, you know, especially now it's the holiday season. There is probably no better time than to to talk about hope, to talk about better tomorrows than it is now. And that's just really what we do. You know, every day we wake up and we just strive to, to be better and we strive to make lemonade out of lemons sometimes. Mm-hmm. I guess the last thing I'd like to say is um, to everybody out there, if I don't see you or hear from you. I want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Please be safe out on the roads. And that was Mayor Derek Kawakami, who talked with us about how Kauai County is managing in this latest phase of the pandemic, and also how the county is collecting the new 3% hotel room tax to pay for county services. At this hour here on Oahu, the Honolulu City Council is meeting to discuss the hotel room tax bill and is to vote on that uh, on final reading today. Some of that money has been proposed to pay for rail. Here on Hawaii Public Radio, we strive to bring you the best of both worlds. We keep you informed and entertained with national programs like Marketplace and Fresh Air. And we also keep you connected to our community with our local shows like The Body Show, Bite Marks Cafe, and Kanikapila Sunday. In fact, one-third of our programming is hosted by HPR's own staff. To learn more about all of our programs, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about the historic hotels that are a large part of the history of Waikiki. Walking through the tourist uh, tourist mecca today, it is hard to imagine what it looked like in the 1890s. One account from that time describes Waikiki as a quiet backwater area surrounded by swamps, taro fields, and duck ponds. But it was also the site of a beautiful beach that was prized by Hawaiian royalty and wealthy local residents. One of them was W.C. Peacock, whose luxurious home became the model for the hotel that we're highlighting. Uh, he gave it a name that means broad, expansive ocean, and it opened its doors in 1901. There were plenty of amenities that were unusual for the time. Each guest room had a telephone, a 
private bath, and there were ice machines on each floor. The new hotel also boasted the first electric-powered elevator in the islands. The hotel has changed hands a few times since the turn of the century. Still, it remains one of Waikiki's jewels. For today's Backyard Quiz, do you know its name? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareetHawaii.com. We're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. New this morning, the Honolulu Board of Water Supply is hoping to meet with military officials today. Uh, the city only just learned yesterday that the Navy shut down access to the Red Hill water shaft Sunday. It's not clear if it could impact the Board of Water Supply operations. The military said uh, it is drawing water from its Wyalva shaft. It shut down the Red Hill shaft in an abundance of caution. In addition, the Department of Education told HPR that a third public school campus has complained of a chemical odor in its water. Pearl Harbor Elementary is still open for class, but like Nimitz Elementary and Red Hill Elementary, it has taped off its sinks and is preparing frozen lunches that don't require the use of water. Bottled water is also being made available to those schools. Uh, we also heard for the first time this week from the Department of Health. HBR's Scott Kim joins us for more on this developing story. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Thank you, Catherine. Well, while the Navy has taken the brunt of the blowback in this situation, the other key agency, of course, is the State Department of Health, which is charged with ensuring the health and well-being of residents. And outside of a statement released uh, late Monday night in which the DOH advised those serviced by the Navy's water system to avoid using the tap water, uh, the DOH has been relatively quiet. But yesterday, Kathleen Ho, the state health department's deputy director for environmental health, held a media availability in which she told reporters that their office has received over 100 complaints over the, uh, since the weekend. Uh, she said uh, she confirmed the timeline that the department was notified about the issue by the Navy late Sunday evening and then began taking samples of the water on Monday. Uh, she did say that the they received samples from the Navy that were taken on Sunday, and those samples were then passed to a local lab, uh, and those uh, results came back as inconclusive. Ho was asked exactly what that means. So on island, we have a lab that can only detect to five parts per million um, of contaminants. Um, we, it was, when I say it's inconclusive, it, the testing did not show um, that there were any contaminants to five parts per million, but that doesn't mean that there isn't any because people have, um, have been complaining of, uh, you know, the odors. So we're finding that that in, in, in the interest of public safety and to protect human health, we're asking, we're taking a very conservative approach. And that conservative approach, of course, is recommending that people who receive water from the Navy not use it for oral hygiene, brushing their teeth, bathing, cooking, washing their laundry, etc. 
Uh, now, to get a better handle on this situation, these samples were then sent to a California lab for more stringent testing, and that's what we're waiting for. She confirmed that the test results should be back in the next couple of days. We've heard unofficially they could be back today, and that's really going to be key in allowing the Navy and the DOH to be able to better find out what exactly is the problem and will help them investigate the source because they're jointly investigating where this uh, problem may be coming from. Now, if these more stringent tests return as inconclusive as well, as in they cannot find contaminants, Ho did say that they will continue to investigate because of the widespread nature of these complaints, sort of uh, where there's smoke, there's fire sort of uh, thing. So uh, they will continue to investigate the source. And uh, when she was asked, well, you know, with all these reports, do you think that there is something there? Do you, do, do, do you believe there's something there? She wouldn't go as far as to say that, but she did say that their inspector, who went to check on various facilities in the area, did report a fuel-like odor from the water in two locations, at least two locations. I can tell you that our inspector did detect the odor of fuel at uh, Red Hill Elementary and at a Aliamanu Child uh, Center. Another thing that Ho confirmed is that uh, all of the complaints of the chemical odor in the tap water has come from residents who are serviced by the Navy's water system, and that's something that has been also put forth by the Board of Water Supply, which released a statement as well, saying that they have not received any complaints and that if you receive a bill from them, from the Board of Water Supply, you are on their system, and at this time, the water, you know, they're declaring the water safe. There are no problems. Um, now... Ho was asked about some of the symptoms that are being experienced by these, those affected, things like stomach pain, uh, diarrhea, vomiting, uh, rashes, and she deferred most of the questions to a toxicologist, but she did say that that could be indicative of exposure to petroleum, so an admission that uh, there may be something there to those complaints, a connection between what is going on with the water and, and these physical ailments. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're not just talking a couple of people. You know, if it's 100 uh, complaints from the board of, uh, into the Board of Water Supply, the military is also getting complaints as well. So it's a large number, and people can actually see things in the water. It, it's a sheen or chunks of something, but it, it's not normal. And, you know, we've had some military uh, wives say, you know, their, our pets aren't drinking the water, you know, and so uh, clear signs that something's not right. Exactly. And, and what we've heard on the conversation here this week is that really they want some acknowledgement of the problem. And so the Navy has set up emergency call centers uh, in which they're taking calls from their urging residents who are finding uh, an odor in their water to call them and let them know uh, what it is and uh, describe it. Uh, they say they've received over 200 calls already to that emergency call center. Right, and they did have the uh, town hall meetings uh, last night with the residents, uh, and they did finally put out uh, water trucks so that uh, more families have access to more water instead of just the bottled water. But, you know, th the concern about, uh, you know, the, the odor, you know, the, the latest school um, uh, Red Hill, uh, not Red Hill, um, Pearl Harbor Elementary, that is not actually on base. It's just off base, but obviously still on the water uh, of, the, uh, of the of the Navy, uh, you know, getting those uh, those strange odors. So 
yeah, a real mystery. And hopefully we get uh, the information, the results soon as they can uh, pinpoint where it's coming from. That will be key. Yes. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Scott. We have been talking to HBR's Scott Kim about the water situation affecting military families in the Red Hill, Pearl Harbor, and Hickam area. You know, sometimes the stories we air, like the water issues affecting military families on Oahu, motivate our listeners to send in their comments or stories via our talkback line. Here's an email we received recently. A compromise on the part of the military should be to downsize the fuel capacity as a first step so they can eventually phase it out. If done in phase it, is, it, could, become, it could be more acceptable and give them time to relocate the facility. Also, the military should be required to allow the Hawaii Department of Health to have health experts in the facility and co-equally monitor the facility as well pay their salary. That was uh, Steele Devon from YPO Gentry. And during our call-in show on conservation funding last week, we discussed the idea of green fees, an additional fee that visitors would have to pay to use our beaches, parks, and trails. Those funds would then be used to fund the uh, environmental initiatives in the islands. Here's one of our guests, Jack uh, Kittinger of Conservation International. What we've seen in other programs in other places is that a visitor green fee is not only a way to collect revenue, but it is a way to engage visitors and to educate them in terms of creating opportunities and that's a really great opportunity for us to really rethink sustainable tourism and to, uh, for the industry to really help differentiate Hawaii as an eco-friendly you know, green destination. So as we think about greening our, the whole tourism experience here, the green fee isn't just a way to collect funding. It's also a way to sort of engage visitors as they come to our islands. And we've seen that have a really positive impact in a lot of other places and something we could draw on here too. And after that show, a listener called in with this idea. Hey, this is Dano calling from Honolulu, Hawaii. Why don't we run it like a um, national park service? You know, residents pay a resident fee, can be collected as part of our taxes. And in order for any entity, private or public, to utilize any resource owned by the public, they have to pay, you know, the, the park service which is already the DLNR, you know, just run it like a National Park Service. That's all. And following our show about Waikiki last week, we received this email. Listening to today's program about the history of Honolulu and specifically of Waikiki brought back wonderful memories from the 1950s when I first visited Oahu with my parents. I believe we were among the earlier guests at the newly constructed surf rider which adjoined the Moana. I recall a genteel concierge whose name was Leonard. I also recall a couple of surfing lessons with a man called Mud who was patient and oh-so-competent in my 12- or 13-year-old eyes. A visit to Punch Bowl and to Pearl Harbor were very meaningful to my parents. However, I believe a highlight for my mother was an evening in the monarch room uh, at the Royal with Alfred Apaka dressed all in white and sporting a magnificent lay of red carnations. I've returned often to Hawaii since those days with some long stays. It remains a treasure. 
However, I was very pleased to hear John DeFries from Hawaii Visitors Bureau speak of the need for tourism to possibly have a different face with more reverence for the land and its people. Finally, I did listen to a lengthy discussion about the merits of a sports stadium, and I couldn't help but think, many valid considerations aside, that this is another blow to singularity and possibly un- unintended negative consequence of too much mainland influence. With a warm aloha and mahalo, Robin Woodward, who hails from Washington State. Thanks for that, Robin. And if you have thoughts or comments for our show, give us a call on the Talkback line, 808-719-8217, or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Rental assistance. Does it apply to people living on boats? Well, that's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Cassie Ordonio on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me again. Yes. So living on a boat, we have liveaboards in a couple of our harbors here on Oahu. Yeah, there's approximately at least 164 liveaboards living on both the Kehi Lagoon and the Olivai Harbor right now. And so how does this all play? I mean, how do you apply for rental assistance? What's all that about? There's actually a gray area for boats. So for boaters, excuse me. Um, so when I went onto the rental assistance on the um, the city government's website, there is actually no clear indication of how you apply for rental assistance as a boater. Um, but when I talked to the boaters, they said it's just the simple live aboard permits, um, basic standards, a lot of paperwork. That's what they've told me. But um, one got an email saying they don't qualify because they're not considered a renter because they own the boat. Okay, and you did reach out to a couple of uh, boat owners. So w- what was their situation? So since the pandemic, some of them have actually lost their jobs. And um, and actually some of them are actually living paycheck to paycheck right now or living off Social Security. Um, a lot of them didn't know that they could apply for rental assistance. A couple of them have. Um so basically what happened is they try to apply, they own a boat, and they just can't get on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, some folks would say, well, that should really only be for, you know, a brick-and-mortar <laughs> building on land. And it gets more complicated, too, just because um, they also pay monthly fees. So the boaters think it's also considered as rent. And in order to live in the harbor, you have to own the boat in order to live on your boat in the harbor Um, but the monthly mooring fees is you pay for the length of your dock or the boat whichever is greater that's monthly you also pay a monthly um, live aboard permit fee and they also get these yellow and blue stickers to say that they are legally living on their boats and also plus utilities that's also separate um, that they pay monthly so they're trying to argue that this is technically rent okay but they've been shot down they've been rejected yeah they have been rejected and Um, and I've also oh sorry no no go ahead um, so I've also talked to um, Senator Sharon Morawaki, and she was thinking of considering expanding the definition of what who is considered a renter because she also said there's a gray area for boaters. And so, you know, I know DLNR isn't real keen on liveaboards. Um, you know, it just it creates a whole host of problems, and they've been uh, battling uh, with these folks for a while. 
That's right. They also cited a Hawaii law that basically says that you know they don't meet the purpose or scope for of the state law that governs small boat harbors. And they also brought up the fact that there have been um, people illegally living on their boats. So that's why they implemented the um, liveaboard stickers that they post on the dock. Yeah, and and some of the concern I think has been you know the fees that they pay. Uh, you know they're they're uh, they've been relatively cheap. Uh, and I think the boaters, uh, you know, have complained because they said, well, you know, the, the uh, facilities there are subpar, you know, that uh, they would like to see better facilities if they're going to raise the fees. Yeah. So when I talked to some of the boaters, they also said that um, during the pandemic, they haven't seen any improvement in the harbors. However, DNLR and um, Senator Sharon Morawaki said they have been trying to make some type of um, effort to fix up the harbor's maintenance, like the restrooms, for example. Um, but it's just not really um, working as fast as they like. And what does uh, Morawaki say about, you know, actually uh, changing the rules to uh, allow for them to be uh, included in this? Um, she hasn't said anything concrete yet, but um, I, that's something I want to follow up later on. Yeah, because I, I don't know if you, you then, um, you know, have to go through the, the legislature or, you know, yeah, but it sounds like it can get, get complicated, but it, there, there's no quick fix. Definitely not. Or maybe she might introduce the bill next session in January. Um, who knows? All right. Well, it sounds like, uh, uh, at least for now, it sounds like those liveaboards then are not eligible and uh, they're, they're just out of luck. Most definitely. So I think, you know, some of them have already told me that they're going to try to figure out you did talk to one a boat owner, I said, uh, I believe, who said that he's actually leaving because he just can't afford to, to uh, make it work here. Yeah, so by the end of this year, he's going to give up his boat entirely, and he basically said he might be living on the streets. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> Yikes. All right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, really interesting uh, uh, take on the rental assistance. Thanks so much, Cassie. All right. Thanks for having me. That was Cassie, reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's Reality Check. To read her stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to offering the community inspiration and learning through art and education. Learn more about gift memberships at honolulumuseum.org slash join give. With everything that's happened in 2021, this year has highlighted what really matters in our community, staying healthy, connected, and informed. It's what we've focused on all year with our news reporting and in our music and talk programming. Like many causes you care about, HPR is a nonprofit organization. Our end of year fun drive is coming up. Help spread the holiday cheer and support HPR as a new member or with an additional gift. Give today at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We have got the Masters of Camouflage for this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to a thrush, also known as the Oma'o. 
The oma'o, or Hawaiian thrush, is found only in the native rainforests of the Big Island. It's a mostly gray and brown robin-like bird that loves to eat fruit from a variety of native trees and shrubs, and plays a big role in helping disperse the seeds of these species throughout the forest. Oma'o have one of the loudest and most recognizable songs of any Hawaiian forest bird. They have a huge repertoire of songs, and every individual sings differently. All the Hawaiian Islands used to have their own species of thrush, but unfortunately Kauai is the only other one where they've not yet gone extinct. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friendsofhakalauforest.org. We crave connections. It's human nature to want to know what's happening in your community, in the news, and with each other. And we need those connections now more than ever. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio helps keep you connected, engaged, and enriched. Wherever you are, whatever's happening in the world, stay connected on the HPR app or ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. Earlier in the show, we strolled through Waikiki's architectural history, highlighting a property that, even now, embodies much of the glamour of Waikiki back in its heyday. First opened in 1901, owner W.C. Peacock chose the name, which meant broad expanse of the ocean. It was a luxury destination from the very beginning, with ice machines on every floor, an electric elevator, and a telephone in every room. The cost to stay in a room at that time, $1.50 a night. Yes, you heard right, $1.50 a night. The ownership history of the property is, is easy to follow. Peacock sold the hotel to Alexander Young in 1905, and later the Young Estate sold it to Matson Navigation Company in 1932. By then, Waikiki was in full swing, welcoming 8,000 visitors a year. That spurred the hotel to double its size, giving the facility an H-shaped configuration that wrapped around its signature Banyan Courtyard. That courtyard remains one of the distinctive features of the Moana Hotel, known today as the Moana Surfrider, the answer to today's quiz. And congrats to Mary Kahavai from Maui. You got it right. If you have an idea for the quiz, please share it. Write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, throughout the year, we've talked to several religious organizations to get an idea of how they were impacted by the pandemic. Today, we hear from the Buddhist faith. With over 30 temples and several schools across the state, the Honpo Hongguanji Mission of Hawaii is home to the Jodo Shinshu Buddhism tradition here in the islands. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with the head of the mission, Bishop Eric Matsumoto, to learn how uh, they've been adapted to the pandemic. I know that your mission is one of Hawaii's most influential religious communities, but I still think that there's a large portion of our audience that's unfamiliar with Jodo Shinshu Buddhism. Would you be able to give me a little, like a little summary of your faith and your practices? Our, uh, well, our organization will be soon uh, celebrating or observing our 135th anniversary here in Hawaii in a few years. And so we started back in 1889 
when the, the minister from Japan came over hearing about how at that time the Japanese immigrants who had immigrated to Hawaii, you know, were having a hard time and, and so forth. And so he thought perhaps that the Buddhist teachings, especially the great compassion of the Buddha Amida, as we refer to it as the Buddha of immeasurable life and infinite light, you know, would be able to offer comfort and you know respite and peace of mind and so forth. And so he came over to Hawaii, and that's sort of the beginning of our organization here in Hawaii. For us, the Jodo Shinshu tradition, which is the Honganji tradition, I would describe it as we're kind of on one end of the spectrum of the Buddhist religion. Buddhism has many, many paths within it, recognizing because we're all different and have various abilities and capabilities, there's a whole spectrum, I would say, <laughs> of teachings, you know, and it's important to find the one that's sort of the right fit <laughs> for you, so to speak. Right. And so our tradition, we don't have, for example, meditation, things of that nature, which most people sort of associate with Buddhism. Ours is a tradition in which we rely and trust 100% to the great compassion of this Buddha named Amida, which is extending great compassion to us uh, and promising that we can attain enlightenment too. And so we're very different in maybe in that respect from the general perception that people have. But but of course, it's based on you know the deeper Mahayana Buddhist philosophies and concepts that they're all there. As I mentioned before, we've talked to a few other faiths in the past about how their services and members were impacted by COVID-19 and the pandemic restrictions. We've talked to Latter-day Saints, Jehovah's Witness. We talked to Temple Emmanuel. And so I'm curious as to how the Hompa Hongji Mission of Hawaii was impacted. Well, like everyone else, I think, yeah, I'm sure they were, we were all impacted in similar ways. But of course, one of the greatest is when, especially when the initial shutdown or lockdown happened, of course, right? The, the limitations on gathering and so forth then limited, you know, our, our ability to sort of offer spirituality and care and things like that to our mem- congregation and so forth that, you know, came every Sunday or, you know, even weekdays and so forth to either receive, you know, the Dharma or the teachings into their life or whether it be to come to volunteer. And so I think that was one of the greatest negative effects that it had. Uh, although I must I must say, I think we did kind of respond very quickly and were able to relatively, you know, begin offering again spiritual care and spirituality to our members and community. But the other, I think that, you know, everybody also faced was the financial. As a religious nonprofit, fundraising and thing, you know, things of that nature are an important part of our, how we support ourselves. So, you know, with the, the limitations and so forth, it became very challenging to hold our, your so-called traditional fundraising, you know, which, which we heavily relied on. And so, you know, that has severely impacted us as well. And we managed to come to this day you know, without having to dismiss or furlough, you know, our, our clergy, for example, mm-hmm. we've been able to, make, you know, provide for them and continue to support them. And so, you know, in that respect, I'm very grateful and feel very fortunate. And of course, I mean, the temple is you know, not only a religious place, but it's also a place where people come for their socialization and all that too, yeah, sort of became very, very limited. So how did your organization adapt? I know from talking to other faiths that they employed a lot of video sessions and, and video access to services. 
did your organization also incorporate this ability to participate via video? Yes. Initially, though, I have to say that I think when it came to like an online presence, you know, including social media, we, we were far behind the game. <laughs> we, we didn't have that much of a presence. But if there's a silver lining to COVID, you know, one of those is that it forced us to kind of seriously, you know, undertake or look at online presentations and so forth. And so uh, thanks to many of our ministers uh, with the help of some uh, uh, lay people, I think we, you know, were able to relatively quickly, I think, from almost zero, <laughs> you uh -huh. know, uh, the, uh, to provide it. But the reach is kind of limited, well, li limited in a sense that many of our congregations uh, members are very elderly. And so, you know, they're, they're, it's very difficult for them to get adapted to, you know, using computers and the internet, to which they hadn't up until that point. And so, you know, I guess the reach internally in that sense is kind of limited. But on the other end, I guess, um, you know, the whole world is your audience now, right? right <laughs> the online right. presence. And so in that respect, you know, the internet or online, you know, reaches a lot more people. But I think, uh, you know, we were, yes, able to manage, I think, uh, during, you know, the pandemic and right now still by providing, yeah, online services and seminars and so forth. Judging from your website, it looks like you guys have done a good job of helping members adapt to this this kind of new way of doing things. Yeah. Yes, it was so sudden, I guess, yeah, for, for all of us uh, that yeah. this happened. And so uh, it wasn't something you could really prepare for, so to speak. Right. right. And so right. We, we, another way we tried to keep in contact with our members, our ministers and temples began calling uh, our members to see how they're doing and because they couldn't come to the temple. And so, right. you know, uh, in, in that process of, you know, reaching out to them to see if they're doing okay and things like that by making phone calls or writing postcards or letters, you know. One of the ideas many have embraced since the start of the pandemic is the importance of faith and a spiritual life. Did your mission see an increase in membership amidst the uncertainty and worry over the last two or two years? I think we do now have a broader audience that mm -hmm. uh, we're conscious of uh, and also trying to provide for that uh, online presentations and you know if something is up on the uh, YouTube or you know the use of Zoom and so forth which you know we usually we often use there, there is a much broader audience a wider audience I think and yeah. so in that respect uh, I think we have been able to get in touch with more people from the Buddhist point of view, from your denomination's point of view, what does the pandemic mean or, or how should people deal with the pandemic? For myself, I kind of realized, I guess, uh, uh, as, you know, things got more serious, you know, how, how much I took for granted. Granted, maybe this is not the case for everyone in our society, but I think for many of us, we live, I think, a pretty good life. When you think about it, you know, was the pre-COVID normal really that bad, <laughs> you know, as, uh, you know, as far as uh, life were concerned, you know, and, you know, I realized for myself, you know, how much I guess I took day-to-day -to -day things for granted, yeah, I guess. Uh, and so it, it kind of made me self-reflect and, you know, say, oh, my goodness, yeah, how, how, you know, even for some of the most basic things, you know, that we shouldn't take it for granted, <laughs> you know, that even that is very, very you know, precious in, in many ways. And so it was a, a, a wake-up call uh, for me, for myself. And uh, 
when I thought about it more, and also when I kind of looked at, at our membership, I guess, yeah, our congregation, our members, and so forth, and how they were kind of coping and so forth with the pandemic and everything. And well, I think I can say generally, you know, overall, our congregations across the state of Hawaii, you know, were generally, I think, very calm and collect and understanding. And I think it goes back to, well, I'd like to give credit to the Buddhist teachings, who, you know, which are guiding them and inspiring them in many ways, uh, you know, like interdependence, for example, that, you know, we're all interconnected and interrelated. So, you know, what we each do kind of does affect not only myself, but others too. And so, you know, uh, kind of um, giving that a priority, I guess, in our thinking, uh, I think, you know, that made a big difference and uh, also, you know, things, you know, such as uh, not uh, what react in fear, I guess, you know, and so forth, you know, in the Buddhist tradition too, you know, fear is, you know, one of the things that, you know, will is considered, you know, something that that no one you know, should have to live in fear. To alleviate fear, yeah, is a very important aspect of the Buddhist tradition. And so, you know, we try to do that by reassuring people and, uh, and in our tradition we speak of uh, again the compassionate buddha which is always with us uh, you know, that we're never alone know that great compassion is always with you so you know don't you know feel like you're all alone by yourself isolated even you know in the pandemic situation you know, I kind of saw how, I guess, our membership, you know, was very cooperative, perhaps, that collaborated, and I'm sure most things did get vaccinated where we didn't require it, but, you know, it's something I think most people did on their own, you know, thinking of the well-being of, you know, one and all. Thank you so much for your time and for talking with me. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome, Russell Teng, and thank you very much. That was Bishop Eric Matsumoto of Honpo Hongwanji Mission of Hawaii talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. The mission has also posted several videos thanking those who made sacrifices during the pandemic on its YouTube channel. We'll have links on the conversation page of our website later today. And we have to go. We're out of time. Up tomorrow, we hope to learn about a burial site of a thousand victims of the smallpox epidemic here in the islands. We do welcome feedback. What are you thinking as we watch this water situation unfold at the military housing here on Oahu? Uh, call us at our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to any of our shows? They are all archived online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.